My podcast guest today has traveled the world to help some of the biggest and best companies improve their culture, build their brands, and help them express themselves. And I'm going to give you this little vignette of a time he was working for a major telecoms company in Newcastle, here in the UK. He was listening to an advisor handling customer service calls. We'll call this advisor Sam, who had previously told my guest that he was hoping to get off early for the football game that evening. A customer called through and Sam took the call. Within seconds, Sam could clearly hear he was talking to a fellow football fan. And yet Sam didn't chat about the game. My guest wondered why, and he realised the well-known telecoms business he'd come in to help wasn't matching its brand with its culture. Sam the advisor didn't feel okay talking about something he was passionate about with a customer. And yet, we can immediately feel how making that human connection is exactly what makes us feel heard and understood. Whether we're customers or employees, the experience a business creates for us sets the relationship, for good or bad and to talk to us about how this is covered in his new book, Stay Human, Unlock Profit by Connecting Your Culture, Brand and Experience. Here's Ben Afia. Transforming customer experience. Um, can you introduce the listeners to what that is? Absolutely. So in the previous podcasts, we we covered a bit of an overview of my thinking and we led into... Uh, understanding of culture, what's going on within the culture, and then how to develop a brand based on the strengths of your culture. Why do we do these things first? Well, it's so that you can effectively transform your customer experience in a way that feels genuine. What I mean by that is um, if you start your brand uh, just from consumer insights without thinking about the strengths of your business internally, then it's quite easy for marketing to make a promise that you can't actually deliver. So if we start from culture, you can then effectively design your customer experience so that you deliver on your promises. So you can promise in your marketing, you can make a sale, you know, make a pitch to your customers, and you can actually follow it up with customer service. You use the word promise there. I mean, is, is this something that people should be thinking of it in terms of that this is a promise? I would say so. I think that what we're doing in branding is making a promise. We're trying to take a space in in customers' minds um, that we are there to do something for them. You know, every business exists to solve a problem that people have with a product or a service that they're able to deliver. If they're not solving problems for customers, then then there is no business. I suppose every piece of marketing is making some kind of promise and it's saying, you know, we can do something for you. So you need to be able to follow that through. And mm. as we know, as customers that quite, you know, so often we feel a little bit let down. Do you think your clients or do you think um, companies out there take this seriously enough? The fact that it is a promise. I think they do. But I think that there are technical reasons why it's actually quite hard to deliver, especially when you get to a certain size of business. So what I found in the larger businesses that I've worked with over the last 25 plus years is that customer services delivered through systems quite often those systems aren't joined up um, just for historical reasons so there may be separate separate databases things get passed between different teams and that technically can make it quite difficult to deliver on promises because any one person in customer service can't always lay their hands on all the information they need to solve a customer's problem the first time are we talking about siloed 
data here, siloed and systems. We are. It was probably maybe 10 years ago now I was working with Vodafone and they were talking about what they called moving house. So although at the time, I think Vodafone were 26 years old or something like that. So they weren't, they were a young, older company, if that makes sense. Hmm. And because they had um, developed systems over time, they had system on top of system on top of system being used by different teams across the business. And they'd reached a point where they realized that they couldn't be efficient unless they integrated them all. Hmm. So the idea behind moving house was to integrate them all. And I think they were going to Oracle, a base system with um, the minimum possible programming so that they had a fairly standard system that was likely to be more efficient and robust. But it's a big, you know, it's a big step for people. It's very expensive to do. It means retraining teams. It means mm. integrating teams. So it's quite a complex process. Is it seen as a CTO just tidying things up when in actual fact it should be seen as something that is more fundamental to the business? I think that most businesses understand how fundamental it is and they are feeling the frustration the problem is the amount of effort it takes to move systems. So uh, one of my insurance clients at the moment are you know, struggling with the same thing. They are working on a system that they've outgrown and they desperately want to move, uh, but it's incredibly expensive and time consuming to do that. And you've got potential disruption to your customer service while you go through the process. These projects are difficult. IT transformations tend to be challenging and they mm -hmm. often don't work. Um, my doctor's surgery has just gone through a similar thing. They were offline for a couple of weeks. We couldn't order prescriptions. The plan was to come back online and they would be in this joyous new world. I saw the nurse the other day and she's struggling to put the data into the system because the system wasn't designed by a nurse. Okay. It was designed by a programmer mm -hmm. who had his or her idea of how that data would go in. A nurse looking at it goes, I need this in a different format. There's huge complexity and it's very hard to have empathy for all of the users of that system and all of the permutations they're going to need. And perhaps we can draw on an example. Those people that are listening to this around the time that we're recording this, the time there is a cost of living problem across the UK, a lot of the energy companies are having to reach out to, um, to their customers to talk about um, some very important things. Are they getting it right? Well, just this morning, I got an example that made me chuckle, actually. So I got an electric car earlier this year. So I've been thinking about getting solar because I'm using more electricity. Uh, I've been getting quotes and I thought that I would go to one of the big six energy providers. I won't call them out because they used to be a client and I don't want to embarrass them. So I'm due to have a call next week to review um, some photos and look at the plans of the roof and mm -hmm. the uh, solar panel and battery products that they might suggest. And I seem to be in the database twice with two different teams. And the reason I can tell is because I've had two emails this morning um, about the same appointment at the same time with the same reference, mm. but they're completely different emails. So one of them starts with a, a photo banner saying your home solutions journey with the brand. Hi, Ben, it's nearly time to start your home solutions journey with us. Just a quick reminder that your video call appointment is booked for Dusta at 4 p.m. with Michael, who is one of our energy experts. The call will last up to an hour. And the second email I got within minutes doesn't have the same banner. It has a different picture of, a, of solar panels on a roof. It doesn't have that headline. It's got the same colors, but arranged in a different way. And it starts, hi, Ben, you're one step closer to generating cleaner energy. Thanks for booking your phone appointment with us. Your appointment is booked for da -da -da at 4 p.m. with Sam, who is one of our solar experts. The call will last around 30 minutes. Okay. They have different people 
One is a video appointment. One is a phone appointment. One is 60 up to an hour and one is 30 minutes. How on earth? What, what do you think's happening? If, if you were to speculate, what do you think is happening? Or perhaps tell us how this is something that you see in other companies as well, that it, it is quite a common issue that needs attention. Um, what are they doing wrong? Well, I do, I do see it all the time. And I guess the impression that it gives me as a customer is not of a company that's disjointed. So if you scroll down these emails, they, they say, here's what you can look forward to as an X solutions customer. The first one is trust us. Now, brand to me is all about trust. And the problem is that when I get two emails that say different things, I don't trust them because they look disorganized. Those differences in those emails give me clues to an organization that's actually not as joined up. And actually, there was one reason that I went to this big brand is because shopping around for solar, there are some good companies around, but there are also some sharks. And I've heard quite a few stories of people who've been stung by companies that are exploiting customers. So I thought, well, let's try a big brand because you can probably trust a big company. I immediately, I'm now thinking, can I really trust them if they're disorganized? So probably what's happened is my data's got entered twice for some reason, but I've emailed them back and said, I've got this twice and I've got two people ringing. So if I have two people calling at that time, what, how's this, yeah. you know, you need to sort this out. If a listener was to think that this is just a small thing, we're here to tell him different. Why is that not a small thing? Actually, I think it's huge because... For all the planning and the thinking and the organizing that we do within an organization, a customer can't see that. They can't feel that. They don't know that that's going on. They don't understand the discipline. They don't understand the attention, the engineering, the attention to health and safety. They're not aware of the, the systems and processes that we're working on internally. The only evidence a customer has of what's going on inside are these points of contact, what I call, what, what many people in customer experience call touch points. I've had two touch points around the same occasion, the same moment in time that differ in their tone, in their messaging. It's confusing for me as a customer. And if it's evidence of what's going on internally, the only thing I conclude is they're not, not really on the ball. They're not very confused that, you know, they're not as disciplined and organized as I expected. And so I'm now thinking, can I trust them? I'm not sure that I can. Am I going to buy from somebody I'm not sure I can trust? I'm getting mixed messages as a customer. Literally. Literally, <laughs> literally yeah. mixed messages. Absolutely. Yeah. These individual, these specific touch points, these moments in time when a customer comes in, in contact with your marketing, with your messages, with your press, with your customer mm. service, with your digital, uh, you know, with your website, when they're filling in forms, when they're receiving emails, all of these individual moments create an impression. Mm. Those impressions add up to your sense of trust and that trust leads a customer to buy again or go somewhere else. Savvy CEOs will also see this, that marketing does have the opportunity to discombobulate if, if there isn't a unified message. Well, the worst thing we can do is push our customers away. Nobody wants to push customers away, don't, do they? But unless you're paying attention to all of these moments and making sure that you're getting the actions and the emotions right, you don't know whether you're losing people. How many people do pay attention to these, small, to these things in detail? Are they few and far between? I think all businesses are, but we get wrapped up in the day to day. So it's quite hard to take a step back, you know, at a point in time and go, right, how is this total experience? How is a customer feeling at every point in this journey? Mm. You know, what, what are they going through and how do we understand mm. what we're going through and, and to see where we might be making mistakes and to work out how to make, make them better. Obviously, you know, every business is aware of it and larger businesses have customer service teams, have people who head up customer service. And customer experience, I use the two terms 
roughly interchangeably, but you know, there are teams who are respons- responsible for this. And these are people who know what they're doing and who are deeply mm. experienced, but it is very hard in larger businesses to get right because of the expense, mm. because you have, you're talking about hundreds or thousands of people. I've done training in some businesses where we've been trying to reach 16,000 contact center people, mm-hmm. 16,000. How do That's you make sure, how do you keep on track on message with 16,000 people? It's not well, tell our listeners, Ben, how do you, how, how do you do that? I would say probably the first step is, as I just said, to take us take one step back, pause, and look at the journey and all of the touch points and do some sort of assessment. So I like to do a review or an audit. When I'm first meeting a business, I uh, work my way around the business and speak to people who are responsible for the various touch points and get a picture of the journey that customers are going through. And don't get me wrong, when I say a journey, I'm not talking about something that's linear. I think we imagine that there's a, you know, people are unaware of us and they go in a linear fashion from one step to the next step to the next step and they buy something from us and then they, you know, they have to talk to customer service and so on and so forth. It's not linear by any means. In fact, Google published a paper in 21 talking about the muddle in the middle of customer experience and the uh, James Hankins in Marketing Week in uh, February 2001 started talking about the Hankins hexagon. And I like the Hankins hexagon, uh, a little Mm -hmm. bit tricky to say, but Mm -hmm. it's, he's trying to design a new model for the path to purchase for people. So Mm -hmm. if you imagine in your mind's eye, a hexagon and at each Mm -hmm. point or node on, uh, in the hexagon, you've got a different experience that customers, a moment that experiences are going through. So Mm -hmm. you might have, uh, you might start off with no need to buy anything. So that's one node. Um, the next might be that they they get a trigger to buy something. So no current need to buy. You've got milk in your fridge. You don't need to buy milk. Mm-hmm. Might then receive a trigger. So your milk is running out and you're going to need to buy some milk. What's interesting is then what happens. Now, milk is a very simple purchase, but there are all sorts of places that we're getting different information. And so, for example, you might go in the store and you might look at Arla and the supermarket brands and compare the, com- the you know, compare the competitors. So that's mm. another point. So mm. no need to buy, a trigger, mm. a comparison. You might then explore possibilities. With milk, you don't need to explore very much, but with insurance, you probably want to spend quite a bit of time in exploring. You may then go to make a purchase. That's another point on the hexagon. And then... Mm-hmm. Finally, you experience a product. If you imagine all those points on the edge of the hexagon and then the lines connecting all the points on the hexagon, almost all of those Mm -hmm. points are connected somehow. The point is that from having no need to buy to receiving a trigger, you can flit between comparing competitors, exploring possibilities and experiencing a product and then buying another purchase, you know, exploring more possibilities, buying another product, receiving another trigger, being happy for a while, not needing to buy anything. The reason it's a hexagon rather than a, a linear fashion is that the way that human brains work are, is not linear. We're always okay. comparing. We're always looking at different options. We get triggers from different places. And a lot of the time, we're not thinking about a category of products or services at all. You know, you only buy house insurance once a year. So you're not comparing in the year in between. But as your renewal comes up, you may start, you know, that, that might be a trigger to then start exploring possibilities and, and comparing contenders. So the idea by, behind the hexagon is just, just to say that it's messy. The pattern right. of human behavior is really messy. Hmm. But what we can do is we can get a handle on all the points of contact within the organization, the teams and the people responsible for delivering them to presenting those to customers. I try to get a, a picture of all those moments that we get in contact with customers, those touch points, hmm. and 
get a sense of where we are now. So that's the very first step is to map out the journey or the hexagon in whatever shape you want to create for your particular product or service. Understand the touch point and see what's happening at the moment. And commonly, I find that they are a bit disjointed, that each moment, some moments might be connecting very effectively. Quite often, marketing is connecting more effectively, possibly because it has more budget, more money spent on it. Professional copywriters, sometimes, often, some areas of customer service can be stellar and other areas of customer service can be, can sound quite different uh, and for all sorts of different reasons. When I get a picture of that and I speak to the various teams, I get a sense of what's true about the culture. And that helps me to see where we might need to correct. And I may have used in, you know, example in previous podcast of um, a mortgage business where they were delivering good service on the phone and customers were generally very happy and mortgage brokers very happy. But when they put things in writing, things became more legalistic. That's evidence of the technical culture behind delivering mortgage products in a heavily regulated industry. That's when the legal language starts to creep through and it creates a different impression than you're making on the phone when you more naturally relate, you have more natural empathy as human beings. What kind of reaction do you get from clients? Do you get clients that feel a sense of satisfaction with this work that's being done? Or do you get some clients that feel that this is additional work that they'd rather not be doing? Is it fun? Do the chief executives that you work with enjoy the process? Uh, yes, to all of those uh, those questions, actually. So I think that people find it refreshing to have that mirror held up and to see mm. things as they actually are. Mm. Because quite, of, quite often they instinctively know that something's not quite right, but it's a little bit hard to identify what isn't right. And unless you know what's not working, it's quite hard to fix. You can't put mm. it right. And, you know, we want to put things right in our businesses. So... I do think people find it intriguing. They also find it a useful argument. When you hold the mirror up and say, you're delivering great service, so the culture is there, it's just that when things go into writing, you're tripping yourselves up and you're actually causing complaints. Then you can identify, you, that's a very strong argument for change. It helps you to build a case internally to make change happen and get commitment from your exec to actually make a change happen. And making positive change happen is a very positive experience. It, it is fun. I, yeah. I have said, have found people, you know, I've worked with for maybe a couple of years on one of these programs, uh, say it's been, it's been the most fun I've had in my career. One of the best I projects I've ever worked on. I can believe it. I can, because th th this must appeal to their intellectual curiosity as well. I mean, we're, we're solving a paradox for these people. So they must feel a sense of satisfaction as it progresses. Is that what you find? Yeah, absolutely. Because you are solving problems and, and it's, it's sort of a step away from the day to day. You know, running a business is tough. We're constantly firefighting problems day in, day out. And so it's very hard to take a step back and look in a way, in a considered way so that you can improve things. And therefore it's very satisfying when you are able to improve things. So yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an enriching process. The leaders in customer experience that you're working with, Ben, how do you want them to feel after this process is complete? Is this, does this process ever complete? I think it's iterative. Um, so it is like painting the fourth bridge. You kind of get to one end and you've got to start at the beginning again because things are changing very dramatically. And, you know, in the last few years, there have been changes going on in the wider kind of macro culture, if you like, but COVID has 
encouraged more change. I think people want to do what's called self-serve digitally more, but they also have higher expectations of what customers are going to bring to them. So I think the, yes, you know, for, I mean, for years, companies have been trying to encourage people online because it's more cost-effective. Mm. Um, so that's happened through COVID, but also expectations have leapt. So it's really being clear what you want to achieve at each stage. And once you've mapped your journey, you've got a sense of all of the touch points where a customer will come in, into contact with you. For me, it's then thinking about what do you want somebody to think or feel or do as a result of that touch point, as a result of that communication. I know that companies aren't doing this because when I ask them, they find it quite hard to answer. So what tends to happen is that over, over the years, a customer service process has evolved. A particular communication has popped up to solve a particular need, but it's very rare, as we spoke about earlier, to step back and look at the whole journey and decide whether all of those touch points are needed. Mm -hmm. uh, but more importantly, how do we want people to feel? So I, I said, what do we want them to think or feel or do as a result of each touch point. So if you're mm -hmm. sending an email or if you're sending a letter, what do you want them to think, feel, or do? You don't have to answer all of the, those questions, but you, you do need to answer at least one of them. And the one that gets missed most often is how do you want them to feel? So quite often communications can be quite functional. So they can tell you what's happening. I don't know, maybe your policy is going to become more expensive. So you're trying to explain why that might be happening. And what do you want them to do? Well, in many cases, you don't want them to, to have to uh, call. So you want that email to answer, answer the questions effectively so that a customer feels that they understand what's going to happen and what's happening next without having to get in touch. Mm -hmm. Because every call that comes in that wasn't necessary is a call, you know, is time that could be spent with a customer who really needs help, the more complex problem. The challenge is that those emails are, are written on those letters are written quite functionally. And they don't tend to be very empathetic. They don't acknowledge how a customer will feel about that information. And unless we lean into how somebody's going to feel, how they feel now and how we will want, how we want them to feel as a result, we don't tackle those emotions, but the emotions are there anyway. If you get a slightly abrupt email, well, let's go back to the example that I mentioned earlier, the big six uh, energy company. I've got yeah. two emails about my yeah. solar call or video, whichever yeah. it is last week, I got two messages. They're not lacking in, in empathy really, but they're, you know, they're fairly conversational. They're fairly warm. They're fairly human, but there's some confu confusion. So I now have to get in touch because I'm feeling bad for them. I've got, I've got both Michael and Sam potentially calling me um, yeah. next week. So I now have to get in touch. Now, what I want to do is I want to email because then I want it off my list. I want to send them an email because I'm hoping that They'll respond to that. They'll get the email. The email will end up in the right team and they'll tell, take action. I'll get another email saying, really sorry, it's going to be Sam, not Michael. And mm -hmm. it's a call and it's a video, not a phone. How confident am I feeling about that happening? Not very, to be honest, because who knows where that message is going to come up. Yeah. So at the moment, my, my emotions around this are, this is going to go wrong. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling doubtful. I'm feeling slightly confused. And that's irritating. Now, you've not sold me a solar package yet. You've not even had a first call and I'm already feeling doubt. So what I'd want that, if I was working with that company again, I would be working on what are the feelings that you want somebody to have at the end of that communication, at the end of that touch point. Because when we acknowledge the emotions, we can anticipate them and make sure we encourage the right emotions. How 
do you want the leaders that you're working with to feel? So we're talking there about how the consumers and the clients um, should be um, guided uh, in their journey and that the the leaders and the, the marketing teams and um, all of the teams should be present there to help in that journey. But the journey that the CEOs, the leaders, the, the, the chiefs, the heads that are working with you, how do you want them to feel? Do you want them to feel nervous because they have a paradox to solve? Do you want them to feel confident because they've solved that paradox? What well, are the emotions? Gonna, Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I want them to feel confident that they okay. they understand the picture now. Mm-hmm. They're clear on where they want to take customers to and confident that their teams are able to deliver that. Right. So absolutely confidence, clear yeah. on a solution and to understand a path and to see that they have a way forward. Um, that's what I'm hoping they're going to feel. Yeah. 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 And I, 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 I think I can see this and I think that it's, it's something that very busy leaders are going to be looking for, you know, what's in it for me. Uh, and if the idea is that they are going to be delivered a new understanding of this, that, that it's going to translate into cash. Let's make this clear. I mean, this isn't about um, being picky about emails at scale. This is worth millions and millions of dollars, isn't it? The, for the larger companies. Absolutely. I mean, I think I used the example um, in a previous podcast about when when I was working with um, Eon, we looked at the customer journey from a tone of voice perspective. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think I said that we we had found that two letters were no longer necessary. So mm-hmm. just by taking the step back, we realized we could save two letters. Now, two letters added up to 860,000 pieces of mail being sent. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can imagine the financial impact of that saving, but mm. also the redu- redu- reducing the hassle factor for customers, mm. yeah. simplifying customer service, uh, fewer opportunities for confusion, mm-hmm. therefore fewer calls into the contact center. Mm. So the cumulative effect is an immense cost saving, but also it has an impact on brand building because you're increasing confidence and trust with your customers. So there's absolutely a bottom line, especially with contact centers, because they're very expensive things to run. You know, your your greatest mm. overhead is your staff, mm. but you want your staff to be able to work as efficiently as possible um, and as effectively as possible. You want them to be able to spend the time, take the time to show, to develop empathy, show empathy for customers and uh, make them feel better about your mm. product or service. I was listening to a podcast the other day about, um, Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, the shoe business that was uh, yeah, eventually yeah. acquired, you know, bought by Amazon. Yeah. And Tony Shea sadly died at the age of 46, I think. Um, but he was a true pioneer. And his focus in customer service was not how quickly can we get people off the phone, which is the focus for many businesses, the mm-hmm. business businesses, is because that's something that accountants can measure easily. Yeah. <laughs> How long's a call? If you keep yeah. the calls as short as possible, you can serve as many people as possible. Gotcha. Tony looked at it in the opposite way. And in fact, he was proud when people spent long time on the phone. Mm-hmm. Because if they spent a long time, they were working on building the relationship. They were yeah. building empathy, making a human connection with customers. Yeah. Yeah. And that made customers love them. Mm-hmm. Love them so much that they referred and recommended um, Zappos to, um, to their friends. And yeah. so... Tony knew knew that if he served people so well that that he wouldn't need marketing, he would save a huge marketing budget. Mm. He would spend more time in customer service 
but he would be building trust and building empathy and recommendations. And he knew that referrals were the key to building a successful business. Is this as simple as replacing a, uh, I'm going to use the words false front, even though I have marketing experience myself, but the, the false front of marketing, taking that and replacing it with the authentic organic uh, benefits of this being part of the culture this isn't going to happen overnight but is this something that leaders can look forward to over time absolutely so i think that this is about recognizing the importance of culture um and thinking about the clues that customers pick up mm. so about about what you're about and what you stand for mm. um most of the focus in businesses today is on brand and on marketing. So how do you craft the message in your kind of your advertising, your social media, your mm. press, your direct marketing, your emails, the letters, mm. brochures, whatever you send out. So we put huge amounts of effort into these marketing messages. Mm -hmm. um, we're not connecting that up instinctively with everything else that the organization is doing. Now, right. what do I mean by that? So um, we think that it's marketing that's putting the face on to customers. But in fact, it's the whole business, wow. you know, contributing. The whole business is adding up to that mm -hmm. experience. Now, that's fairly apparent when you think about customer service, because we know that, you know, if you come on web chat, if you make a call into a contact center, if you email a contact center, mm -hmm. you know that those messages are going to make an impression on a customer and um, encourage them to to like to, to know like and trust you mm -hmm. but it's also about your product design your service design so it's every part of the organization leads to the total customer experience mm. um so it's absolutely about the strengths and the weaknesses of the culture and how they show up in every touch point with the customer so we need to think about it really holistically it's not just about marketing it's throughout the organization and it's um it you know it, down to your legal teams i mean it, it really goes to down down to that level of detail if you make a, a a nice promise in marketing and then you undermine it with a caveat in your in your t's and c's that undermines the trust well let's take this and run with it and let's 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 give the listeners a little bit more detail about how do you equip teams to to do this kind of thing so in the previous podcast, we talked about culture. So this is about understanding what you're like at your best, hearing those stories and getting a genuine sense of the strengths. Um, in the second podcast, in the next podcast, we talked about brand and how we develop a brand strategy that mm -hmm. turns those strengths into a story that speaks to your people internally and speaks to customers externally mm -hmm. and other stakeholders. So then we need to think about, well, how, what do we do with that? How do we make sure that that becomes consistent and that, to me is about then designing training so under culture we talk about values and we talk about behaviors mm -hmm. so that's the definition that feeds into the brand strategy that develops the story and turns it into the you know the broader sense of your identity the, mm -hmm. the visual elements and the other things that help the your brand personality come to life yeah and now we have to train people and so there's a range of skills that we think about in terms of training I think of them in groups. So we have uh, broader leadership and management managerial skills. Mm. We have technical skills and we have communication skills. Um, so once we develop those behaviors into different skill sets, the ones in particular that I think apply to your customer experience are 
um, in particular written and spoken tone of voice, because that's where you can really, you have the opportunity to express empathy or not. So you have okay. the opportunity to draw people into your world or push them away. Mm -hmm. So written and spoken tone of voice. And the, you know, those are the practical skills on the ground that your customer service people are using day in, day out. So they may be uh, writing emails, they mm -hmm. may be responding to emails in and to letters coming in. Mm -hmm. um, so they're replying to those in writing. Um, but often as not, they are on the phone they're, or they may be on, on web chat. So I've worked mm -hmm. with large web chat teams where they're having to respond in the moment and express empathy, which could be quite challenging. Mm -hmm. um, and then they're on the phone. So when people, when people call in um, and, um, you know, and that can be very challenging because often people are calling in because they've got a problem. Mm. Um, they may be in distress. You know, you mentioned earlier the cost of living crisis as the time we're recording this um, mm. is, is going on around us and yeah. people are struggling financially. And mm. so as companies, we need to equip people to cope with those. And, and one, of, one of these moments that brought this to life for me in particular was working with Oldermore Bank as we went into the pandemic um, and the first lockdowns we had people who couldn't work. Um, we had businesses in disarray. We had people having to work, having to work from home or being um, put on furlough, so they weren't working. Mm -hmm. And they had a huge uplift in calls in because people were worried about their mortgages, uh, especially if they were in the process of moving house. Yeah, um, things were dis in, in disarray. So the specific need that they came to me at that point was, how can we help our our teams to feel more empathy for customers because we know that these moments are absolutely crucial in helping our customers feel looked after feel cared for feel like we've got their backs and that was a sp specific brief help our teams to have more empathy and obviously we were in lockdown so we had to deliver that online so we created some training we used a team of actors to role play these calls uh, to you know, in a safe environment, put um, agents under pressure and give them scenarios and help them to practice the skills when mm. they had, you know, distressed customers calling up. Mm. So this is what I'm thinking about when we're talking about equipping our teams. It's about training. It's beyond the systems training. It's empathy training. It's how that you, how you express human connection when you're on the phone, when you're in writing. And um, yeah, how do you make that human connection? I think the listeners will be interested to hear um, the details of that. And that is that in the training that goes along with this, it might be new training, it might be learning new skills, but you're not asking companies to down tools for a month to, to, to just become an academic operation in order to learn these new things. All of these lessons are imparted whilst they're going about their business. That's That's the case. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, we have to be flexible. Um, you need enough people available to, um, you know, you need the capacity to deal with your, um, your workload with the incoming calls. Hmm. Um, and especially in times of strife, that's, you know, you're under pressure because you, is, you can't recruit that quickly. Hmm. Most companies I work with do have an outsourcer who can uh, bring other teams to, you know, can build out teams fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to have deep empathy, it's your internal team who, who are really, you know, best equipped that are best trained to, to mm -hmm. handle that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we have to be aware. I mean, I've just been going through with one company. Uh, we, our proposal was that we would train in groups of 15 
and modules of uh, three modules, uh, two of 90 minutes and one of 60 minutes. Now, previously we would have done two days of training. You know, this is probably many years ago, two days of training offsite. We take them to a hotel and immerse them and we'd have a group of 15 to 30 people and we'd immerse them and work with actors for two days. So it's really deep skills. Yeah. Um, we can't do that anymore. And because through the pandemic, people have been, you know, companies have been recruiting from across the country and across the world. We've got to be able to deliver much of this online. Mm. So initially we suggested groups of 15. Um, they said we can't have more than five off the phone at any one time. Um, obviously okay. you know, there's a big difference between 15 and five. If you're mm. delivering in 15s, you can, uh, uh, you can deliver to you know, many fewer sessions. So it's much more yeah. cost effective. If you're trying to deal, deliver to five, <laughs> it gets very yeah, expensive. Yeah. yeah, We've settled on 10 as a reasonable number. And also 10 is a good group size because um, at 10, you've got the sort of number of people that hopefully everybody's going to feel comfortable putting putting their hand up and, and asking questions or mm. commenting in chat, in, in coaching the actors to improve, you mm. know, to improve how the call goes. So we want a small enough group that people feel comfortable uh, talking and um, making, you know, make, uh, giving comments and that they feel engaged and, and that it's, they're a part of the training, um, mm. and contributing, um, once you get to too large a group, then that starts to fall apart because people, be, you know, the quieter people aren't, aren't so confident putting themselves forward. And how do you make this last? How do you, how do you make sure that the leaders continue after you've left the premises? Yeah. Well, I think I mentioned in the first uh, podcast that I like to work through a group of champions or a group of influencers within an organization. So all of the work that we've talked about in these podcasts, I depend on a group of of champions or influencers, and they're recruited from across the organization. So I think of them as a sort of a diagonal slice through the organization from from senior to junior and all of the teams represented. So I like to gather a group and that makes sure that that all the teams across the organization feel represented. Mm. So when I'm gathering my information, I'm doing my review, doing my audit and getting a sense of what's going on. Uh, I'm uh, piecing the customer journey together. I'm getting a sense of what's already working. Um, It makes sure that the whole organization feels represented. Mm. And then it, means that I've got a group of people who can um, tap, you know, give me a feel for the skills that every individual team will need mm-hmm. because it, we need to create something generic that will help the whole organization, but we also need to tailor for specific teams. For example, okay. customer service might need particular, uh, have particular needs that are different from a claims team, for example, because they're going through different processes. Mm-hmm. So our group of influencers and champions gives us that platform. What though that group also give me is a group of people who may then um, become trainers. So mm. we we like to train the trainer, as it's gotcha. called, yeah. within our, our clients and equip a group of people to take the work on and continue it once we've disappeared. Mm-hmm. So that helps an organization to become, uh, to sustain the skills themselves because they have the in-house capability. Mm-hmm. But the, the next part of that puzzle is to develop what I think of as a coaching culture. So it's all very well training, but you also need to be then coaching in the skills so that you maintain them. Um, And part of that is adjusting KPIs. So adjusting how people are measured before they go into training 
-hmm. knowing that when they come out of the training, they're not going to be quite as efficient. So as you're practicing new skills, you're going to slow down in the short term, but you're going to speed up in the, in the, you know, in the longer term. So we have to relax KPIs. We have to relax the targets in the short term, which means a negotiation with management uh, in order to to help that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, relax the KPIs and then also give them backup. And and my ideal way of of building coaching into the business. So our team of influencers or team of champions are the people who can lead this, and we can spend a lot of time ch- training those people. But I want them then to be training team leaders, team managers, mm-hmm. because really your day to day contact is with your team manager. And so that person is best equipped to know you personally, to understand the details of the, the calls and the emails that, are, that you're dealing with day in, day out. Um, and so what do I mean by a coaching culture? In many cultures, it's sort of a, a command and control approach where you define where we're heading, where we, you define your values, you define your behaviors, and then you train people in those behaviors and you expect them to get on with it. Mm-hmm. But I think employees expect something more nowadays. The relationship is changing and people want more bit more input. Okay. And rather than just being told what they're not doing well, um, what coaching helps you to do is to help people to identify where they can improve and how they can improve for themselves. And the reason this is more powerful is that when you identify what you could do differently for yourself, you're much more motivated to take action on it. Mm-hmm. When you're told what to do, nobody likes being told what to do, do they? And no. when you're told what to do, you kind of resent it a little bit. You feel picked on. Right. It's not it's not a positive experience. In fact, I, I worked with one quality assurance team uh, at a business in financial services. And um, I remember them telling me that they felt they, they'd actually had feedback. And this was somebody who was being recruited into this, who was going, you know, being interviewed for a job in this team. And she referred to it as feeling like a witch hunt. Okay. Now, I thought this was funny because this is somebody who actually wanted to join that team. She was interviewed <laughs> for a job. Yeah. Why she would quite use that word, I don't know. But that word really stuck out for me. Okay. Now, so what that, what that tells me is that the quality assurance, QA, QS, whatever you call it, mm-hmm. feels like a witch hunt to the people who are being QA'd, who are being quality oh. assured. Okay. Now, that's not a really positive way to, for it to be looked at. Now, no. I understand how that comes about. It comes about because um, to fulfill the needs of the regulator or the underwriter, mm-hmm. um, you know, there are certain boxes that need to be ticked. But this is how the technical culture ends up driving the social culture and getting in the way of building empathy. Ah. So in this situation, what I wanted to do was how could we address the quality assurance process? How could we train and equip the quality assurance people Mm -hmm. to not be witch hunters but to be coaches okay and that's quite a different perspective when you take quality assessment and you change that into an opportunity for coaching what you're doing is you're creating an opportunity for growth and that's much more encouraging when a when a qa then is in a coaching conversation with somebody rather than a these are the things that you've done wrong, or these are the ways that I want you to, you know, want to what you to improve. Mm-hmm. It's a much more positive and encouraging conversation. And it's a much richer role for the people who are in those jobs, for team managers being equipped with coaching skills. It helps them to help their, their teams 
to find answers for themselves. And that makes the teams more independent. And that has a, um, a knock-on effect of freeing managers and leaders time to work on other things because you're gradually over time coaching your teams to be more independent, to find answers for themselves, to support each other, which makes them less dependent on the manager. So this is what I think of as a coaching culture, equipping people with a much more positive skill set, a self-learning skill set that then feeds feeds its way all the way around the organization and makes it much more sustainable. It embeds the skills. It makes customers' experiences better, and it helps the teams to deliver that in a more consistent way. There's a lot of um, of geopolitics happening in the world. We're two years after the pandemic and, and the lockdowns. We talked about furloughs. Is it the case that there's never been a time that empathy hasn't had a more financial value in the history of business? I would say so. With so much going on, you know, it's harder running a business and we're feeling squeezed as customers. So customers need more from us in a way. So there has never been a better time to fine tune your customer experience, to fine tune your customer service teams, to help them to deliver more efficiently and more effectively and principally with more empathy. And we're not being glib there, are we, Ben? What we're saying is the things that are happening in the world at the moment translate directly into challenges and paradoxes that need addressing. Um, but the opportunities for those that do grasp the nettle are enormous. And those that choose not to address this, what do they face? What happens to the companies that say, empathy is lip service. I'm not even going to give it a go. I'm going to carry on with my command and control. What happens to them? Well, they're the companies that aren't going to last very long. Okay. Because there are businesses that are managing empathy surprisingly effectively. And ironically, part of this is technically. So let's think about empathy in different ways. So empathy is, is about how you and I connect in the moment how I connect with you through the touch points, but it can also be delivered programmatically. If you look at how Amazon serves up other suggestions, okay. um, what Amazon have done is they have cracked, um, I think the empathy paradox Ooh. because they sell hundreds of thousands, millions of products. Um, and they've, they do it all online and they don't really want you to have to get on the phone. To be fair, I don't think they make it as easy as they could. They would rather you self-serve digitally before you need to make contact. The way they do that is by they've identified particular touch points where uh, where I think they've really got the empathy right. So for example, I bought a MacBook case for my son who's just gone off to university. Fairly new. The corners have crazed and they fractured and it needs replacing. Hmm. Um, now with some companies I'd go back to and they'd want me to send photos and you know they might argue about whether they're going to replace it or not. Amazon just replaced it. I got on web chat. I knew, I knew from experience that I couldn't just do the direct return, the 30 day return, for example. Mm. Um, so I went on web chat. I knew that I needed to speak to a person who could make a decision make a sensible decision. Mm. I said, this is what's happened. Would you like me to send photos? You know what they said? It's okay, Ben, I trust you. The person I spoke to set up the return. It took five minutes or something. Mm. And I got the email bang, I can just send it back. Okay. Uh, and I know that the, the money will be in my bank. The moment I take the parcel to the post office, you know, a day later, the uh, the money will be in the bank. Gotcha. That's where I would say Amazon have really nailed empathy because mm. what they've recognized is that what I want to feel in that moment is, you know, I've got to, I'm distressed because I've got a problem. Mm. Heart sinks because I've got to set up a return. I know that's going to be hassle. I don't want it to be hassle. Um, I want it to be solved simply. Amazon solve it 
quickly and simply and they give me the result that I want and I'm happy and I will continue buying from them because of that reason. So absolutely, I think companies like Amazon have nailed service in a digital environment and I think they've nailed empathy in many ways. They get other things wrong, but they have got that right. And for companies who aren't, you know, haven't got this right, they're going to find it increasingly difficult to trade. They're not going to be winning as much business. And I, and I feel for uh, the, older bra- the older brands that we know and love on the high street who are struggling with historical estates, with historical uh, IT systems, mm. who just can't match that level of service. I feel for them. You have empathy for them, Ben. I do, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I've been there. You know, I used to work at Boots. Boots is a great British brand, a great British retailer. The, the, the difficulty of, of running a state of hundreds and hundreds of stores across the UK, mm. um, you know, that's a very complex picture. Mm. And, you know, you probably know when you go on the high street to your local Boots that some Boots stores feel quite tired, mm. especially those on the on the less well-off high streets. Um, yeah. Some of them, you know, are looking tired, but they mm. are providing a service to the public. You know, mm. the high street needs a pharmacist. Yeah. And that's the strength of the business. And we trusted Boots because of that relationship over many, yeah. many decades. But I feel for them, you know, it's difficult to make the level of investment required to turn that around. We're, we're, we're reaching the end of this podcast, but I know that you and I are going to be jumping on another podcast in the future because we've had so much fun doing this series to tie in with your new book. Uh, and it's thrown up so much to talk about that we're going to squeeze in another couple of podcasts around this. And perhaps we can talk around your favorite brands and we can talk about what they do right. That might be something that we can talk about in more detail. But for now, Ben, thank you much indeed. And I'll shall see you again on our next podcast. I'll speak to you soon. You can learn more about Ben's new book, Stay Human, Unlock Profit by Connecting Your Culture, Brand and Experience at his website, benafia.com. <laughs>